High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. So we can show the sex act all over the place. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this.
Today, we're going to complete the story of Eyes Wide Shut and transition from the fallout of that film's release in the summer of 1999 to examining what else was going on in sex in Hollywood as the century came to a close. Our guide through that journey will be a star who has been part of our story since near the beginning. Richard Gere, the bisexual sex worker from American Gigolo, the corporate raider who falls in love with a sex worker in Pretty Woman, was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in 1999, an honor chiefly reserved for men who pose no real sexual threat. How did the original American Gigolo, not to mention a tabloid star for two decades, whose openness at performing sexuality led to bizarre urban legends, which we'll get into, become domesticated, even desexualized. What was happening at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st that shaped the ways in which Hollywood relates to sex in movies today? Join us, won't you, for part 21 of Erotic 90s. Our last episode ended in the late spring of 1999, with journalists who hadn't yet been allowed to see Eyes Wide Shut running highly speculative coverage, suggesting it would be, to quote one magazine cover line, the sexiest movie ever. This kind of hype maybe felt a little bit more justifiable a few months earlier, when these articles were probably decided on and when Eyes Wide Shut had not yet been rated. There was a conversation in the movie trades as to whether or not this film should prove to be another test case for the commercial viability of the NC-17. If Eyes Wide Shut did accept its rating, wrote Dan Cox, it would have far-reaching implications for the industry as a whole and its concept of NC-17. There was speculation that since audiences had roundly rejected the last two high-profile NC-17 theatrical releases, Showgirls and Crash, the pendulum of the culture wars had swung back the other way. Quote, Conservatives complain that with moral tones in the U.S. shifting every day and oral sex in the White House a national topic of conversation, films that once might have been rated R can expect a less stringent designation. Two examples were offered of recent ratings that might prove the MPAA was easing up a bit on some of its hard and fast rules. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, released a year and a half earlier, had gotten an R despite ample on-screen sex and one shot of a very large prosthetic penis. And the now-forgotten Ron Howard comedy Ed TV, which included both sex and masturbation scenes, had been rated PG-13 that very month. Some in Hollywood felt they had finally cracked the MPAA's code. As one anonymous exec told Variety, you can get away with basically anything these days. It's only violence or very graphic sex that can be a problem. But as Cox noted, many in Hollywood are hoping eyes lands in NC-17, since a high-profile project with big-name stars and director might help break down some of those barriers and allow future films to be released with that rating. 
Apparently, no one from Warner Brothers was included in the many. WB exec Terry Semmel told Variety, When we submit this film, we're confident it will be an R-rated movie. But they were also hedging their bets in case they did decide to go with an NC-17 rating. Cox wrote that someone unnamed from the studio quietly points out that Clockwork Orange, despite its X rating, grossed $41 million in 1972. In 1999 dollars, that makes the pick a $150 million grosser, which WB execs would happily accept with wide open eyes. This is kind of a bullshit comparison because releasing an NC-17 film in 1999 was a totally different business than releasing an X-rated film had been in 1972. In 1972, there were no restrictions on where an X-rated movie could play or on newspaper advertising. In 1999, the vast majority of mainstream movie theaters were part of national chains which would not book an NC-17 or unrated film. Also, Kubrick personally withdrew clockwork from circulation in the UK after the film was accused of inspiring copycat crimes. As Jan Harlan, Kubrick's producer and brother-in-law put it, he felt very misunderstood about Clockwork Orange, very insulted. The last thing Kubrick would have wanted was for Eyes Wide Shut to become another Clockwork Orange. Then, in early May, Warner Brothers announced that Eyes Wide Shut had been rated R by the MPAA on its first try. So that seemed to put this conversation to an end until the film was finally screened for critics days before it opened. Most American journalists saw Eyes Wide Shut for the first time at the Junket in Los Angeles, held less than a week before the movie's release date of July 16, 1999. At the screening, after the movie ended, Jan Harlan came out to make an announcement. The version of the movie they just watched would not be released in the United States, Harlan said. In what Variety's Todd McCarthy described as an extraordinary gesture, Harlan asked the critics to stay in their seats while he explained that in order to appease the MPAA and get the R rating that Kubrick was contractually obligated to deliver, whether he was dead or alive when Eyes Wide Shut finally came out, 65 seconds of Kubrick's final cut had to be altered. Harlan then showed the critics those 65 seconds in which digital figures had been inserted to block the audience's view of, as McCarthy put it, the depraved activities of the elite guests in the orgy scene. Except that the uncensored version, which critics watched before Harlan's remarks, didn't get that depraved. Before digital alteration, the scene, as McCarthy acknowledged, showed various nude couples engaged in what could politely be described as vigorous copulation, although always artfully arranged so as not to reveal any genitalia. In other words, standard softcore simulation. The critic went on to explain how the back-to-back -back viewing of the uncensored and censored versions of the orgy scene 
was instructive in what the MPAA deemed to be acceptable and what it didn't. Nudity and pretend sex is okay, and naked and active crotch-to-crotch contact is not, even if nothing private is on view, McCarthy wrote, adding, difference in impact between the two versions is negligible, and actually seeing what the MPAA considers NC-17 worthy makes the org's nitpicking seem absurd, especially given the gruesomely graphic violence to which it routinely applies R ratings. According to one LA Times report, after this presentation, Roger Ebert stood up and said, Why did Warner Brothers go through the charade of putting in these digitally created figures to obscure the sex acts at the orgy? Why not have the courage to embrace the NC-17 rating, since this film is unsuitable for a 15-year-old kid? If Kubrick was an uncompromising filmmaker, why would he agree to that? A few days later, Ebert interviewed Cruz and asked him about the stigma against the NC-17 rating. Quote, Wouldn't a Kubrick picture with Tom Cruise be just the opportunity to overturn all that? To which Cruz responded, You're preaching to the converted here, but Stanley made the decision, you know. He wanted this, and there's nothing I could have done. As Ebert continued to press the actor as to why no one stood up to the MPAA to defend Kubrick's vision, Cruz audibly sighed and said, There aren't any real rules with the MPAA, you know. Later, when promoting the movie in Europe, Cruz would more directly attack the MPAA, saying, It's ridiculous. It should have gotten an R. It's not pornography. But in the lead-up to the U.S. release, the party line was to say that Kubrick knew he needed the film to get an R rating and that he wanted an R rating because he wanted it to be seen by as many people as possible. As a WB spokesman put it, he was adamant that his film would get an R, and his way to handle the issue was digital alteration. It wasn't news that Stanley Kubrick was a closet populist. As Michael Hare wrote, he had great respect for the box office, if not the greatest respect, and found something to admire in even the most vile movie once it passed 100 million. America was all he ever talked about. He was crazy about The Simpsons and Seinfeld, and he loved Roseanne. Kubrick's embrace of four-quadrant pop culture aside, there were financial realities here as well as creative ones. The Wall Street Journal weighed in with numbers, quote, to turn a profit on the film, which cost $64 million, Warner will have to attract the kind of broad audience that wouldn't ordinarily be drawn to a movie that explores the changing sexual relationship of affluent New Yorkers, exploring the bounds of marital fidelity. Terry Semmel of Warner Brothers told the journal that the release plan had been formulated by he and Kubrick before the movie was even finished. They saw it as counter-programming in a summer, to quote the journal, clogged with movies targeting teenagers. That clog would include two films that often came up in conversations about Eyes Wide Shut's rating, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the R-rated animated satire featuring the characters from the Comedy Central series, and American Pie, a blockbuster comedy about the sex lives of teens, which famously got its R rating only after director Paul White's 
agreed to remove two thrusts from the scene in which Jason Biggs' character sticks his penis in a warm pie. In short, Eyes Wide Shut needed a wide release in order to justify its cost, and no NC-17 film had ever been released on thousands of screens. But even if the filmmaker had understood that Eyes Wide Shut would not have been given a wide release unless it received an R, critics had a hard time believing that Kubrick would have approved the digital alteration that they saw. To Warner Brothers' claims that Kubrick had issued the directive for the digital work before he died, Los Angeles film critics President Manola Dargis responded, Since he is dead, there is no way of ascertaining if that is true or not. But he was such an intense perfectionist, I can't believe he would have done it in such a shoddy manner. In trying to protect children, the MPAA is infantilizing the adult movie-going audience. Roger Ebert also questioned whether Kubrick would have really approved this sop to the ratings board. Kubrick died in March, Ebert reminded his readers, adding, It is hard to believe he would have accepted the digital hocus-pocus. Eyes Wide Shut should have been released as he made it, either unrated or NC-17. Both the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the New York Film Critics Circle issued statements protesting the digital figures added to the orgy scene. The LA critic statement read in part, by censoring Eyes Wide Shut, Warner Brothers and the MPAA have acted as if Stanley Kubrick made a pornographic movie. He did not. There is nothing in the original uncensored film that Americans can't see any night on cable television. The decision to digitally alter Eyes Wide Shut in order to secure an R rating, once again proves the deeply chilling effect the rating system is having upon creative expression in film. In a guest column in Variety, MPAA chief Jack Valenti dismissed these critics as this small band of constant whiners who talk to each other, write for each other, opine with each other, and view with lacerating contempt the rubes who live out there, west of Manhattan and east of the San Andreas Fault. This was in keeping with what would soon become clear was the mood of the moment, which was that Kubrick was quote-unquote out of touch, and so was anyone who stood up for his right to make the movie he had wanted to make. To which Dargis responded, Valenti's comment feels like a shutting down of dialogue. I see our letter as a first volley in an ongoing discussion about the role of the MPAA today. Backtracking from his evident frustration in the Roger Ebert interview, Tom Cruise was a good soldier when speaking on the ratings issue to the LA Times. Stanley knew he had to deliver an R-rated film, Cruise told the paper. It was his decision to alter the scenes. He knew in the editing room what kind of digital work needed to be done. That was the line until much later. In 2019, Vulture published an oral history of Eyes Wide Shut's orgy scene, in which Patty Eason, the film's supervising digital compositor, recalled getting brought to the Kubrick estate shortly after the filmmaker's death to meet with the crew that was going to have to prepare the movie for release in his absence. They had a huge problem, Eason said. 
When Kubrick died, the cut was known to be locked, and he was a very hands-on editor. But the agreement between Kubrick and Warner Brothers was that he was contracted to deliver an R-rated film. Nobody had had the conversation with Stanley before he died about how he was going to square that circle, because the orgy scene as it stood wasn't an R-rated scene. Kubrick, according to Leon Vitali, was conscious that we were treading in pretty dangerous territory. But Vitali added that Kubrick's lack of participation in the solution was for the best. Quote, I'm glad he wasn't alive to go through this whole MPAA thing, because it was ridiculous and stupid. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Kubrick's initial vision of Eyes Wide Shut as a black comedy is not what most viewers got from the movie in 1999, but then they were primed for a different movie entirely. It was a bad idea in this salacious climate to toy with people's expectations by suggesting that Eyes Wide Shut was going to be the sexiest movie ever made, a last tango in Paris for our sex-drunk times instead of telling the extremely risky truth and saying that it was merely one of the most beautiful, wrote Michael Hare. He added, Stanley was hardly blameless in this, 
And I suppose it's possible that if he thought he could get away with it at this time and in this country, then maybe he was out of it. We can take it as a given that he controlled the publicity and marketing strategies until the hour that he died. I don't know who became the commander afterward or whether it was a shared command, but there was an excessive use of firepower and many missed targets, and the collateral damage was all to the movie. Reviewing the film in Entertainment Weekly, a magazine that had done its share of spreading inaccurate rumors about this film's alleged perversity, Owen Gleiberman dismissed Eyes Wide Shut as red shoe diaries with metaphysical pretensions. I hope I don't offend the gods of cinema by pointing out that this somber control freak orgy, as perversely spellbinding as it is, isn't really sexy. Gleiberman griped. Kubrick clearly hadn't seen enough straight-to-cable thrillers, which routinely transmute nasty sex into death. By the time he died, he'd observed a generation's worth of cultural change from within his self-imposed bunker. And the remove shows. It's his eyes, I'm afraid, that seem to have been wide shut, and his movie that wears a mask. A lot of easy cudgels used to slam Eyes Wide Shut were here, complaining that the film wasn't sexy, that it was too pretentious to be sexy, that Kubrick was clearly out of touch and over the hill and disconnected from American culture. Many negative reviews suggested critics felt cheated out of seeing real sex or a reality-bending approximation of it between its stars. Eyes Wide Shut is wretched, wrote British critic David Thompson. It is as slow and painful as watching someone with Alzheimer's try to play solitaire. It studies the primal human impulse, erotic imagination, but without energy, humor, or hope. It possesses one of the film's most famous married couples and puts them in a film where they never make love. Incidentally, seven years later, Thompson would publish a book on Nicole Kidman, which The Guardian's Peter Conrad wrote, often veers dangerously close to pornography. Thompson wanted more sex between Nicole Kidman and her real-life husband. In the LA Times, critic Kenneth Turan expressed discomfort that Kubrick had put him in the position to contemplate Tom and Nicole's real sex life while watching this movie. According to Turan, the film's strangest aspect was, quote, its frankly voyeuristic quality. Given that Cruz and Kidman are married, it's inevitable that we feel like we're eavesdropping on their lives, a feeling that is more disconcerting than pleasant, especially in the brief amorous embrace that has been featured in almost all the film's publicity. Other married couples have played married couples on screen, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton coming most famously to mind. And it often is a dicey, disconcerting business, something Kubrick in his own odd way may have counted on. Turan, too, felt the publicity had promised something that the movie didn't deliver. Far from the hot date night movie the racy Warner Brothers campaign would have you expect, 
It's half brilliant, half banal, but always the work of a master director whose output has gotten increasingly distant and self-involved over the years, and not always to our benefits. Even those who liked the movie didn't pretend to have remained untouched by the sexiest movie ever hype. You were expecting a Tom Cruise-Nicole Kidman soft porn movie? Asked Desson Howe in the Washington Post. Eyes Wide Shut was certainly sold that way in a jillion TV interviews and magazine stories. But after the titillation has died down, and whether or not America embraces this one-of-a-kind experience, time will eventually smile on this movie, I believe. For more than two and a half hours, my eyes and mind were wide open. Howe could not keep an open mind when it came to the digital interventions in the orgy scene. What an insult to the memory of Kubrick, and what an indictment of the gymnastics studios undergo to avoid an NC-17 rating. There were other positive reviews. At Variety, Todd McCarthy called Eyes Wide Shut a riveting, thematically probing, richly atmospheric, and just occasionally troublesome work, a deeply inquisitive consideration of the extent of trust and mutual knowledge possible between a man and a woman. Ebert gave it three and a half stars, but his review had more to say about the MPAA and the digital alterations, which he called a shame, than about the film itself. Quote, For adult audiences, it creates a mesmerizing daydream of sexual fantasy. The joke, Ebert wrote, is that Eyes Wide Shut is an adult film in every atom of its being. With or without those digital effects, it is inappropriate for younger viewers. It's symbolic of the moral hypocrisy of the rating system, that it would force a great director to compromise his vision, while by the same process making his adult film more accessible to young viewers. But the positive review that had the biggest impact, at least on the critic who wrote it, was found in the New York Times. This astonishing last film is a spellbinding addition to the Kubrick canon, wrote Janet Maslin. In what proved the riskiest film of his career, the man who could create a whole new universe with each undertaking, chose the bedroom as the last frontier, to the point where prolonged conjugal conversations are major events in a long, winding, and surreal story. Maslin's support for the movie was considered controversial in New York, where most of the local critics and tabloids had a field day making fun of it. Maslin's own paper countered her rave with a long pan, published two days later by book critic Michiko Kakutani. There is little erotic heat between Mr. Cruz and Ms. Kidman's characters, and even less of a sense that they have a seven-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old marriage, a fatal flaw in the movie that needs to make us believe in the couple's shared life together if we are to care about its possible disintegration, wrote Kakutani. What's more, the masked orgy, much hyped in advance publicity for the movie, feels more ludicrous than provocative, more voyeuristic than scary. In the scenes of Mr. Cruz and Ms. Kidman arguing or making love, the viewer can literally feel the strain of their doing take after take after take. 
Based on the letters the New York Times published, Kakutani's take inflamed more readers than Maslin's. Dana Bonaconti wrote in to brand Kakutani's piece appalling. Eyes Wide Shut is a brilliant, truthful work about marriage and the human condition, protested reader Rosemary Tischelman. John Simon, the theater critic for New York Magazine, wrote in to fact-check several of Kakutani's statements about the faithfulness of the Schnitzler adaptation. But it was Maslin who was made to feel, in her words, out of step. Two months after Eyes Wide Shut came out, the New York Times announced that Maslin would leave her position as lead film critic at the New York Times at the end of that year. Maslin told The Observer that she had quit amidst concerns about workaholism and a feeling that, quote, movies are less interesting to write about than they used to be. Some other critics were empathetic to Maslin's claims of burnout. Wall Street Journal critic Joe Morgenstern acknowledged, the summers have become more and more dispiriting. You need the earplugs, the brain transplant. But media columnists had a lot of fun speculating that Maslin had, in fact, been pushed out. Did she quit or was she fired? Gossiped Slate, adding, she has taken a lot of flack lately for her chipper enthusiasm about movies everyone else hated, such as The Phantom Menace or Eyes Wide Shut. The Observer noted that she had found herself virtually alone among New York critics in hailing Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut as a great film, and that Maslin was unapologetic about that. The movie business is changing in a way that I'm not sure I would have enjoyed, she said. I'm still somebody who would rather watch Eyes Wide Shut than The Thomas Crown Affair. The Pierce Brosnan-Rene Russo remake of Thomas Crown Affair was amongst the classier offerings in theaters that summer. You have to wonder if what was really controversial about Maslin's review was not merely the fact that she liked Eyes Wide Shut, or even that she took the MPAA to task. As we've seen, she wasn't a total outlier on either score. But in praising Eyes Wide Shut and railing against the rating system, she also used her review to call out several other films which were big box office hits that summer and implied that the MPAA had separate standards for serious art films and for crowd pleasers that stood to earn the studios more money if they got more accessible ratings. Quote, Eyes Wide Shut provides a stunning epiphany for the summer of the dirty joke. This is a dead serious film about sexual yearnings, one that flirts with ridicule yet sustains its fundamental eeriness and gravity throughout. A film that brings the failings of the MPAA rating system to the boiling point. Eyes Wide Shut is suffused with sexual possibility at every turn and uses frontal nudity to deliberately potent effect. Yet its mood is not strictly one of eroticism. The changes, adding computer-generated figures that partly obscure sexual activity during a 65-second sequence, are a joke. The meaning and effect of the acts witnessed remain the same, and any system that puts such a profoundly adult film in the same category as American Pie, South Park, and Lake Placid is inadequate to the nuances of an R-rated world. 
as the R is allowed to disintegrate into an outright goal for teenagers, the system has left itself with no way to differentiate between crude frat boy jokes about having sex with dessert and this intricately nuanced exploration of the nature of sexual bonds. The NC-17 rating has degenerated into a stigma, so it would have been worse than useless for a legitimately adult film like this. Charlie Rose, on whose show Maslin was a frequent guest, gave Maslin an exit interview of sorts in November 1999, and he couldn't resist bullying her over Eyes Wide Shut. This culture is is exploding. It's just changing very, very radically and very fast because of the internet, because of all sorts of technological things. The way we watch movies even is affected by that, that. The way we process information, the way we write to each other, all of it is just turning into a different kind of language. It sounds kind of abstract, but... You know, I I just am fascinated by all the dot-com part of our lives that's starting to come along and the fact that nobody has an attention span anymore and that you have to trim subtlety out of something if you want anybody to listen to it. And I'm interested in that new language that's evolving. Okay, good for you. Now, is there part of this also a little bit of of, um, you're not excited about the film business anymore? uh, As it happens, this is going to turn out to be a very good year. Things at the end of the year will really... uh, redeem this year quite a lot. So it's not that this has been a horrible year for film. Well, it doesn't need any redeeming for me. American Beauty pretty much does it. Okay, okay. Well, and Eyes Wide Shut. You never give up, do you? I told you it was bad then. I'm telling you now, it's bad. No, but there are interesting movies. This is not because of the movies. It is, though. At the end of this clip, Rose says that the movie American Beauty redeems the year of 1999 for him. That movie, an incredibly broad indictment of American suburban life, which begins with a teenage girl complaining that her dad is, quote, a horny geek boy who sprays his shorts every time I bring a girlfriend over from school, and then goes on to indulgently dramatize the dad's sexual obsession with the teenage friend for two hours before shying away from his desire in the final moments would win the Best Picture Oscar for that year. Eyes Wide Shut was nominated for zero Oscars. You can decide for yourself whether or not history got this right. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We ended erotic 80s by talking about Sex, Lies, and Videotape, an independent film that moved closer to the center of the zeitgeist than perhaps any indie had before, launching a wave of interest in filmmakers working outside of the system. But it wasn't just audiences and critics who were interested. It was the system itself, which set to work co-opting indie film, bringing individual directors into the studio fold, and buying up and corporatizing specialty distributors. By 1999, iconoclastic filmmakers whose careers were launched at festivals, such as Soderbergh, David O. Russell, and Paul Thomas Anderson, were making big-budget movies featuring major stars to be released by multinational corporations. In the case of these three directors, going big didn't necessarily mean compromising artistically which, in a way, sent a dangerous message about the cozy comforts of corporate culture that certainly wouldn't be the experience of everyone. The stigma against selling out, a holdover from the peak rock and roll era, which was very meaningful for most of the 90s, was replaced by the cultural pressure to get on the bandwagon of populism. And within this climate, the audience was always right, and questioning the artistic worth of box office hits while insisting that a box office flop was misunderstood was extremely out of fashion. And Eyes Wide Shut was a box office flop. In its opening weekend, it grossed $22.8 million, good enough to open at number one, knocking American Pie out of the top slot. This would be equivalent to about $42 million in 2023 dollars, which is about $12 million less than the most recent Mission Impossible film grossed in its opening weekend this summer. I make this comparison not just because this is another Tom Cruise movie, but because both films were released on the same mid-July weekend, and the Mission Impossible movie, which at the moment I wrote this, had grossed $172 million domestically, 
has been widely reported on as a financial disappointment, in part because it cost so much to make, and in part because it took so long to make, leading to very high expectations. And these were the same talking points directed at Eyes Wide Shut. Three days after Eyes Wide Shut opened, the Los Angeles Daily News ran a savage item headlined, Downcast Eyes? Quote, Eyes Wide Shut continues to be the talk of Hollywood, and not in a good way. We are now hearing such dire predictions from industry insiders as, the grosses will drop like a stone, and it won't wind up making $60 million domestically. At the all-media screening of Eyes Wide Shut, many didn't even try to hide their hostilities toward the film. People came out of the Warner Brothers screening room making such remarks as, Isn't it awful? It's just terrible. The next day, The Hollywood Reporter did an item on the film's abysmal cinema score, the A through F rating given by ticket buyers polled as they exited a theater. These grades are usually inflated to the point that a B- minus is considered a disappointment. Eyes Wide Shut got an average score of D-. This was considered a real facepalm. As Edward Mintz, president of CinemaScore, told People magazine, You start getting Ds and Fs, a movie shouldn't have even been made. This is where the discourse was at. The masterful final work from one of the most important filmmakers of the century shouldn't have even been made because people walked out of the theater either confused or disturbed or pissed off that it hadn't been closer to celebrity pornography. Admittedly, it wasn't just the moviegoers polled by CinemaScore who had strongly negative reactions. A week into Eyes Wide Shut's release, the LA Weekly compiled reports from theaters around the city. Writer Paul Cullum claimed that the audience at an 11.30 a.m. screening at Mann's Chinese Theater included director Tony Scott and actors Gene Triplehorn and Christian Slater. The crowd started laughing at the movie early and often, and even heckled. Quote, When the Inquisitor demanded of Tom Cruise, what is the password for the house? Someone in the back shouted, Bullshit! Cullum added, There were a number of walkouts, a trend which continued throughout the day. By Saturday at the 9.40 p.m. show at the Vista in Silver Lake, a crowd of tattooed men and women gathered outside afterward, borderline angry and shaking their heads, but too shell-shocked by what they had seen to disperse. In its second weekend, Eyes Wide Shut's box office plummeted. It was beat for the weekend by American Pie and a live-action movie based on the cartoon Inspector Gadget. Ultimately, its domestic gross would top out at 55.7 million, just under 10 million less than it had cost to make. From here, the postmortems began. What had gone wrong? Some cited the fact that the movie was released the same weekend that John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane went missing, which was given round-the-clock coverage on cable news, and which some blamed for depressing turnout at the multiplexes. But JFK Jr. couldn't be blamed for Eyes Wide Shut's nosedive in its second weekend. Conventional wisdom held that a week-to-week drop like that could only be explained by negative word of mouth, which the cinema score attests to. 
But if the question was, why was the word of mouth so negative? Many felt the answer had to do with the way the film had been marketed as a kind of narrative sex tape documenting Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise's real-life bedroom habits, a kind of Pam and Tommy sequel with much higher production values. Expecting sex, promised sex in writing. Critics and commentators wanted sex, Michael Hare wrote. They were outraged that the orgy didn't turn out to be the fuckorama of their not unreasonable expectations that the stars didn't get all the way down so we could watch. Brill's Content, a magazine devoted to critiquing the media, which billed itself as the independent voice of the information age, ran a feature in their October issue taking to task the publications which had aided the Eyes Wide Shut promotion campaign, Sight Unseen. Rarely has a studio so successfully kept all details about the actual product being sold out of the media coverage surrounding its release, wrote Catherine Rosman. She quoted Terry Press, who was then running marketing for DreamWorks, as marveling that the media, quote, just fell for it hook, line, and sinker. The smartest thing they did was not show it. The press just ate it up like it was whipped cream with a cherry on top. The jig was up the minute the movie got shown. Rosman cites this 2020 segment in which Diane Sawyer interviewed Tom Cruise as a primary offender. How much sex is there in this movie? (laughs) So much. I mean, we keep reading about Stanley in the room, manning the camera. Were you making love to your wife in front of Stanley Kubrick? Gotta go see the movie. I mean, I, you know, it, uh, it's not about sex. The movie. Stanley never said it was about sex. It's about sexual obsession. It's a thriller about sexual obsession and jealousy. And you know, I mean, all the rumors that surfaced about, you know, I mean, just the wildest stories you could ever imagine that were. <laughs> well, yes, but it's basically. Oh, outrageous! Just outrageous. a hidden but, camera in your bedroom. Yeah, but that's 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 not what the movie's about. That's not what the movie is. And Stanley, uh, it's not pornography. It's not. If he wanted to do that, he would have done that. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's me kissing and touching my wife. I don't. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We're married, and you know, it's the character and. <laughs> You're laughing. Ashamed <laughs> 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 so of myself. <laughs> I just ask you if you went all the way with your wife. <laughs> I do go all the way with my wife. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you this: what we did is what was shot in the movie. What what is shot in the movie is what we did. In the Brill's content piece, Rosman quotes the first part of this exchange but not the part in which Sawyer, who was married to director Mike Nichols and as such probably shouldn't have been expected to do unbiased interviews with Hollywood stars, claims to feel ashamed for asking Cruz if he and Kidman had had real sex on camera. Rosman notes that Sawyer declined to talk to her, but Cruz's publicist Pat Kingsley did agree to an interview in which she described the give and take between the media and the movie's marketers and distributor. 2020 and other supposed news outlets were willing to commit to coverage of a movie they hadn't seen, and to base that coverage on the idea of sex, according to Kingsley, 
not because they were trying to help us, but because they were trying to help sell magazines, newspapers, television ratings. That's what it's all about. The national and local media's hunger for Tom Cruise content was cited in a Village Voice story as one of the reasons why Eyes Wide Shut should have accepted an NC-17 and served as the highest profile test case of that rating to date. Peter Bronstein wrote that when Terry Semmel of Warner Brothers said, we're not in the NC-17 business, it, quote, once again proved that studios and not necessarily the public seem to have a vested interest in conflating NC-17 with pornography. With the hype behind eyes, industry insiders insist, Warners could have restructured the marketplace in favor of NC-17 by securing its supposedly forbidden advertising and distribution. Bronstein then quoted Jeff Lipsky, the co-founder of indie distributor October Films, which had released Lost Highway, who in 1999 was working for Samuel Goldwyn Films, which had handled the micro-release of Lolita. There's this mindset in Hollywood that NC-17 can't make money, but in point of fact, the only experimentation along those lines was with films like Henry and June and Wide Sargasso Sea, films that never had a shot whether they were R or NC-17, Lipsky said. Eyes Wide Shut did have a shot and was maybe the only movie that some of the institutions that policed how NC-17 movies were marketed and released might have bent for. As Lipsky put it, I'd like to meet the sales manager of a TV station in Iowa who's going to turn down ads for a Tom Cruise movie. Instead, a decade into the NC-17 era, the rating had, to quote Bronstein, become in some ways more stigmatized than its predecessor. Unlike The X, which in its heyday at least made some people horny, NC-17 only frightens people, what with its noxious connotations of sex, violence, drug use, and least sexy of all to Hollywood, smaller profit margins due to the shutout of teen viewers. And that was the bottom line. The bottom line. Warner Brothers was more concerned about recouping the investment they had already made than they were in taking a chance that could have opened up a real commercial lane for NC-17 films. Because of the focus on teen consumers that we've already discussed, major corporations didn't think a lane that excluded those under 17 was worth pursuing. To that end, instead of putting out a more explicit version on video, the first VHS and DVD release of Eyes Wide Shut contained the U.S. theatrical cut so that Warners could aim to make back some of the money they had lost on theatrical at Blockbuster. Nowadays, if you buy or rent Eyes Wide Shut on Apple TV, you will get the theatrical version although there have since been disc releases containing the international version without the fake people in the orgy. This state of affairs gave Village Voice columnist Bronstein a chance to look into his crystal ball and predict the death of sex in movies. Quote, NC-17, whose demonization hinges on an overlap between cultural conservatism and profit maximization, is more valuable to Hollywood as a vehicle for eliminating the radical and erotic peripheries of mainstream cinema. 
given an MPAA calculus in which one breast equals roughly 43 dead bodies in terms of its potentially traumatic effect on children, NC-17 is effectively a dump site for cinematic depictions of sexuality, a way of sexing down all movies. The net effect is a second production code whose terms are dictated less by morality than by economies of scale swathed in pseudo-morality. In this formula, there's no room for NC-17. Not only that, but there would be little room for movies that took sex seriously at any rating. After the break, the erotic 90s come to an end. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman announced they were getting divorced in early 2001 about a year and a half after Eyes Wide Shut was released. With that film still a laughingstock in Hollywood, it was easy to jump to the conclusion that the long process of making it had destroyed their marriage. While promoting the film, both actors spoke of the pressure the long, demanding shoot put on their relationship. Cruz was quoted as saying that the acting experience was so intense, quote, It could have been something that destroyed our marriage. It's very wrenching to play out feelings of jealousy with your own wife. When you play that scene with someone you know so well, you can't get away with anything. You can't back off an inch from the truth of the scene. It was hard because you couldn't help but bring home the stuff from the movie. I'm just glad we made the movie now. It would have been a lot to ask to do it in the first year of our relationship. Kubrick's own marriage, his third, although the first two lasted five years combined and this one spanned the last 40-plus years of his life, had loomed large over the shoot. The filmmaker had modeled the apartment that Bill and Alice live in after the New York apartment he and Christiane had lived in 40 years earlier. And Cruz knew that Kubrick had been putting off this production for a long time, in some part due to a request from his wife. When he first wanted to do it, it was after Lolita, Cruz recalled. And Christiane told me, she said, don't, oh, please don't, not now, we're so young. Let's not go through this right now. For her part, Kidman said, as an actor, you have to be very truthful. And that can be difficult on a marriage. It was almost like discovering a new aspect of each other, which was exciting, but also scary. Years later, she acknowledged, people thought that making the film was the beginning of the end of my marriage, but I don't really think it was. The truth didn't matter. It was tantalizing to connect the failure of the Cruz-Kidman marriage to the failure of Eyes Wide Shut, because it made both failures seem much more newsworthy. 
Unfortunately, it was true that Eyes Wide Shut was a financial disappointment. In its third weekend of release in the U.S., Kubrick's film slunk down to the seventh spot on the box office top 10. That week, Runaway Bride opened at the number one spot with $35 million. Runaway Bride represented the long-awaited reteaming of Pretty Woman stars Julia Roberts and Richard Gere with the director of that film, Gary Marshall. The movie itself fails to recapture the magic, so to speak, of the blockbuster that first brought them together, despite a few blatant callbacks, including a negotiation scene and a shopping scene in which Gear has to lay down the law. But while Pretty Woman was one of a number of films from the turn of the decade that suggested that a mass audience was fine with a certain frankness about its adult characters' sex lives in an R-rated film, Runaway Bride was calculated for changing times. This movie, which was rated PG, is virtually sexless. There's a touch of innuendo, but no action. There's no better analogy for what happened to sex in Hollywood movies in the 90s and the quote-unquote sexing down of all movies than to compare these two films bookending the decade. In our episode on Pretty Woman, we explored the immediate aftermath for Julia Roberts. Gear had his own aftermath. Pretty Woman's box office success defibrillated the actor's perceived bankability, but that success also sparked a backlash. In a mean-spirited assessment of Gear's career from 1996, Entertainment Weekly called Pretty Woman a romantic comedy so heartless and soulless you're amazed to remember it wasn't released in the Reagan era. I mean, it was released in the Bush senior era, so more or less the same thing. The result was that Gear spent much of the 1990s on the defensive, even while his stardom was unmatched. As we'll see, this owed largely to his off-screen life, but his celebrity was such that he could spin box office gold out of unlikely material. An example of this is Summersby. A remake of the French film The Return of Martin Guerre, Summersby has Gear playing a Confederate soldier who returns to his family years after the end of the Civil War as his wife is on the verge of marrying another man. The wife, played by Jodie Foster, senses that this man claiming to be her husband is an imposter, but soon succumbs to his physical charms anyway. The narrative is predicated not just on us believing that with gear, Foster's character experiences a sexual liberation, but also that the whole town is, in a way, attracted to him. Logic-defying but fun as a bodice ripper with just enough grounding historical detail Summersby is high himbo cinema, and it made money. It feels like it could not have been made without Richard Gere's unique sexual charisma. Over the course of the 90s, for every hit like Summersby, Gere made a couple of the kinds of flops that are best left forgotten. Two of those films, Final Analysis and Intersection, were the kinds of erotic thrillers that played into the decline of the genre, both creatively and in terms of how the genre was perceived commercially. 
During this time, Gere's political activism made him conspicuous in a Hollywood where being perceived as too politically correct could sour one's reputation with both the old guard and the new. When Gere used his time as a presenter at the 1993 Oscars to speak out against China's abuse of Tibet, there were reports that he was banned from attending the ceremony for 20 years. But 10 years later, he was back, presenting a clip from Best Picture nominee and eventual winner, Chicago. I checked with the Academy, and they have no record of such a ban ever occurring. Around the time of making Pretty Woman, Gear met Cindy Crawford. They took their relationship public at the 1991 Oscars, where Pretty Woman was nominated, and where Crawford wore a soon-to-be legendary red Versace dress. At the end of that year, Gear and Crawford eloped. Cindy Crawford was very famous for a model at this point. She had already posed for Playboy and had appeared in George Michael's music video for Freedom 90. But her husband was in another league. As she later recalled, I was young and he was Richard Gere. She also said he taught her how to be famous. Three years into their marriage, Gere and Crawford were so fed up with tabloid speculation about their supposed sexual secrets that they purchased a full-page ad in the Times of London, which read, in part, We are heterosexual and monogamous and take our commitment to each other very seriously. We remain very married. That year, Instead of naming a single actor their sexiest man alive, as had been custom, People magazine named Gear and Crawford the sexiest couple alive. In some sense, this was an insult to Gear. He couldn't hold the title on his own, as Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, and even Nick Nolte had before him, which in a way called into question both Gear's sexiness and his manliness. The following year, they would divorce. By way of defending Gear in a 1997 profile for Vogue, John Powers wrote, People don't want to hear about egolessness from a millionaire actor who sleeps with models, nor do they want the American gigolo lecturing them about human rights. There's an aloofness about Gear that makes people enjoy knocking him off his high horse, gossiping about his marriage and sexuality, mocking his interest in Buddhism and Tibet, clinging to that preposterous urban legend about a rodent. All right, that. For decades, Richard Gere was plagued by jokes and rumors indicating that he had engaged in gerbling, i.e. inserting a live gerbil in one's rectum for sexual gratification and then had to go to the emergency room to have it removed. Documentation is hazy as to whether or not anyone is known to have needed medical intervention for, to put it plainly, sticking a gerbil up their ass. As for why this rumor attached itself to gear, it seems to have been a way of making an extreme gay joke about the actor. This might have stemmed from the queer or sexually ambiguous characters he'd played in films like American Gigolo or the play Bent. It might have been a reaction to his apparently effortless and unashamed projection of sexuality, which struck some as threatening to their own masculinity. 
This was something Gear understood and even reveled in. From the beginning of his career, as he put it, I had no qualms about showing my body. I will admit that I didn't start off playing priests, but frankly, I didn't care. I was interested in exploring that stuff. I thought it was adventurous. Adventurous of me personally and adventurous for any man to do it. He was right. It was adventurous of him to put his body in the spotlight the way that female performers had always been expected to. It wasn't exactly unprecedented. You could argue that he fit into a himbo mold occupied in the golden age by a William Holden or a Rock Hudson. But maybe one thing that annoyed Gear's critics the most was that he wasn't content to shut up and look pretty. Instead, he used glossy press coverage as an opportunity to talk about his pet causes from Tibet to third world poverty in a way that was politically distasteful to the exact audience who viewed his comfort with his sexuality with suspicion. It was probably a combination of these factors that led to a collective need to take him down a peg. No one knows exactly how the association between gear and gerbling first entered the public consciousness. Mike Walker, a reporter for the National Enquirer, claimed he'd never worked harder on a story in my life, only to fail to find any confirmation. Shock comedian Sam Kinison didn't need confirmation. He began including jokes about gear and the gerbil in his stand-up around 1990, the year Gear's stardom was supercharged by Pretty Woman. This routine is framed as Kinnison's defense against the gay community's complaints about his homophobia. Insensitive! They called me insensitive! These are guys that put gerbils and hamsters up their ass! Insensitive! How sensitive, how sensitive can you be if you're putting a live animal in your fucking ass? How many people have heard about Richard Gere having a gerbil in his ass? I swear to God, it's maybe a rumor. I hope it's a rumor. <laughs> I was in Miami last night. The fucking crowd there went nuts. I go, shit, everybody in the country knows, supposedly, because I don't want to get in trouble, but supposedly... Supposedly, I guess he was in the hospital. Mark, you would probably know, but is this for real? You're a doctor in LA, it is for real? He had a gerbil in his fucking ass? Two of them? <laughs> Whether or not the entire country knew the gerbil story, more of them did after this bit. The gerbil story's longevity as an urban legend was helped by Gear's disinterest in combating it, either by speaking to it directly or by changing any of the behavior that led people to want to make fun of him. Some of those reasons really had nothing to do with sexuality, except in the sense that in the late 20th century and in the early 21st, an attack on one aspect of a man's character could easily dovetail into aspersions thrown on their masculinity. In trying to construct a timeline of gerbil jokes, I came across a post from October 2001 on a message board for firefighters in which someone claiming to be a chaplain attacks the actor, who he refers to as Mr. Gerbil Gear, 
for anti-war comments he apparently made at a post 9-11 fundraiser. Quote, I know as a chaplain, I'm to set an example of compassion and forgiveness for those who wrong us, but the folks like Gear and anybody else who chimes in with peace and love are spineless worms. In this instance, the gerbil becomes a way of calling Gear an unpatriotic pussy. 9-11, of course, was a cataclysmic moment that, amongst many other things, officially killed off any lingering aspects of 90s culture that felt incompatible with the never-forget rah-rah USA moment that could turn men like George W. Bush and Rudy Giuliani into war heroes, if only temporarily. But as we've discussed, the country was already heading into a more conservative moment. An embrace of religious nationalism was oxygenated by the post-Star Report backlash against Bill Clinton and the 60s idealism he had at one point represented, even while defining his presidency in large part on anti-progressive acts, such as the crime bill and don't ask, don't tell. Richard Gere seemed to embody this shift in 1999. This actor who had played so many roles defined by sex including kinky, aberrant, or commercialized sex, now claimed to see himself reflected in Clinton's sex scandal, and he didn't like what he saw. The best I can figure out about why I was so angry with Clinton is, I'm angry with him because he's like me, Gear told W Magazine while promoting Runaway Bride. He has all the faults that I have. Well, sure, we all have our problems. But how many times in our infinite number of lifetimes do you get to be president of the United States? Eight years, just do the best you can. He could have gone back to being a fuck up after he left office. He put his hand on the Bible and said he was going to be the best part of us. It's disrespect of such a high order. In the same article, Gear talked about how Buddhism has the power to turn a man into, quote, a conscious sexual practitioner, if you just remove the ignorant aspect of it. Maybe Buddhism could have helped Bill Clinton practice self-control for eight years, but even if his personal spiritual practice was motivating Gere's criticism of the president, he was hardly the only public person who seemed embarrassed by Clinton's out-of-control libido. In a culture that is constantly swinging back and forth from one extreme to another, it made perfect sense that such a high-profile act of adultery, not to mention abuse of power in the workplace, would signal the final retreat from the in-your-face sexuality of the early and mid-90s. And it also made sense that the actor, thought by many to have been the sexiest man in movies for over 20 years, would only be able to hold the honor of People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in 1999 as he was promoting a totally sexless film. At the beginning of Erotic 90s, we talked about Pretty Woman as a classical romantic comedy from the 1940s, updated for the more sexually permissive 90s. Runaway Bride was a 90s romantic comedy regressed back to the sexual standards of the 1940s. But if there is one Richard Gere film that feels like a bridge from the 1990s of erotic 90s 
to the current state of a largely sexless American film industry, that movie is not Runaway Bride, but Unfaithful, Adrian Lyne's follow-up to Lolita, and the last feature he'd release for 20 years. Diane Lane was nominated for an Oscar for her role as Connie, a suburban housewife and mom who goes into Manhattan during a windstorm and ends up crashing into a young, handsome Frenchman played by Olivier Martinez. They begin an affair, characterized by out-of-control lust, which sometimes spills over into public places. If this sounds familiar, it is. Unfaithful is literally a remake of a Claude Chabrol film from the 1960s, but it's also kind of a remake of Line's Fatal Attraction, with the roles and mores updated from the 80s to the 21st century. Updated is actually maybe the wrong word. If Unfaithful reflects the zeitgeist of the moment in which it was released, the image it shows us is of a cultural climate that's even more repressed and patriarchal than that of Fatal Attraction, and an America that's even more hollowed out by rot. In 1987, there was debate as to whether or not the final shot of Fatal Attraction, featuring a photograph of mom, dad, and kid in happier times, suggested that the family unit would be strengthened by the murder of the interloper. Unfaithful actually depicts the emotional labor involved in a three-person family attempting to hide one family member's murder of the outsider who threatens to topple the fragile house of cards of the nuclear family. Like Nine and a Half Weeks, Unfaithful is progressive in that it takes a woman's sexual desire seriously, but it also depicts the great sex that Connie is having as fundamentally incompatible with her responsibilities as a mother. Enthralled to her lover, Connie totally loses control of her life and behaves insanely recklessly. As her husband, Edward, Gear wears dorky glasses, hides his body largely behind bulky sweaters, and his hair has been dyed a just-for-men-looking shade of mousy brown. Gear buries his essential allure, up to this point his signature as a star, in this character whose biggest crime at first appears to be being boring. He's a nebbish, a nerd, who poses no palpable sexual threat, and yet in a moment of shock and trauma, discovers he's capable of murder. He goes to his kid's school recital with the corpse hidden in the trunk of his Mercedes sedan. More than holding a mirror up to the sexual politics of its moment the way so many previous Adrian Lyne films tried to, in its last hour, Unfaithful becomes an indictment of the facade of perfect families. Shot just before 9-11 and released just months after, it becomes a devastating portrait of American life lived in constant fear and of what it looks like day to day to bury the evil shit you've done and just keep living life like nothing has happened. In the previous Adrian Lyne films that Unfaithful seems to call back to, the inciting sexual incidents are ultimately shown to be incompatible with a moral, empathetic life. But these movies also acknowledge that these incidents happen because sexuality is a powerful, mysterious force 
that not everyone has the late 90s gear like Serenity to control. They allow their characters to enjoy aspects of the sex they shouldn't be having. In Unfaithful, Connie's affair is tortured and tortures her almost from the start. Very quickly, she starts to resemble Sharon Stone in the last quarter of Sliver, with both women depicted as junkie zombies under the spell of sexy young men who seem liable to devour their bodies and their souls. And the knowledge that his wife is having sex not just with another man, but a man who possesses the youth and virility that he no longer does, absolutely destroys Gears Edward. Did you hurt him? Huh? Edward? Did you hurt him? You did, didn't you? Jesus, Edward. Talk to me. Tell me what you did. You tell me what you did. You fucked him over and over and over. You lied to me over and over and over. Edward, please. No, you don't talk to me now. I gave everything for this family. Everything. And what did you do? You threw it all away. The fucking kid! You didn't think I'd know? I couldn't feel it? I knew it from the very first day. Because I know you, Connie. I know you and I fucking hate you! I didn't want to kill him, I wanted to kill you! Oh, God. Edward, oh my God. Gear's portrait of impotent male rage puts even Lyne's own previous tackling of that subject in Indecent Proposal to shame. Unfaithful has none of Indecent Proposal's fairy tale flourishes, and Gear's character never makes the apology for his fragility that we saw in the earlier film. Though Adrian Lyne would probably not relish the idea that he had made a second film in a row that was unavoidably in dialogue with the work of Stanley Kubrick, in this scene, Unfaithful comes to feel like a companion piece to Eyes Wide Shut. But where Cruz and Kidman's Bill and Alice can feel relieved that they are now awake and move forward with open eyes, Connie and Edward are cursed to be awake, to continue to live with the knowledge that he killed a man out of his insecurity over his wife's sexual appetite. Unfaithful ultimately grossed about the same as Eyes Wide Shut domestically. It was more profitable than Kubrick's film because it didn't cost quite as much to make and market, but it fell far short of the $100 million grosses from the peak of Line's career. The audience for movies that treated the sex lives of adults with gravity was getting smaller and smaller. Just over two decades after emerging as the most sex-positive actor in American movies, 
An unfaithful gear embodies the humiliation and anger he spoke of in the post-Clinton sex scandal moment. In 1999, he and many others felt turned off by the destructive potential of unchecked desire. Unfaithful dramatizes a culture recoiling away from desire, choosing to repress it in all its complexity, rather than deal with the problems and the violence that sex can incite. It suggests that in silence, the guilty can avoid consequences. As we know, silence was pretty much status quo until fairly recently, and it seems evident that there is still much about sex and power that no one wants to talk about. I have been asked if Erotic 2000s is coming up next. It is not. There wouldn't be a total dearth of material, but most of the movies of the early aughts that pushed the envelope sexually were made outside of Hollywood, which will remain the focus of this podcast. Over the course of the decade, there were several international art films that were given and kept NC-17 ratings for their North American theatrical releases. For me, the most interesting of these were Bernardo Bertolucci's The Dreamers, which was the first NC-17 release in six years when it came out in 2004, and Lust Caution, directed by Ang Lee. The latter film would finally test the concept which we've been talking about since the beginning of erotic 80s, of the serious, dramatic film for adults that includes graphic sex that's crucial to the story. Lust Caution was Lee's go-for-broke follow-up to Brokeback Mountain, which on its release in 2005 had become the most successful serious drama to directly depict a queer sexual relationship in Hollywood history. One of the reasons that film was able to succeed as well as it did at both the box office and at the Oscars is because the MPAA gave it an R rating, rather than the knee-jerk NC-17 that they had given in the past to films focused on LGBTQ experiences. The sex in Lust Caution was hetero, but it was much more graphic than the sex in Brokeback Mountain. Today, there is a faction that insists movies shouldn't have sex scenes because they do not advance the plot. I think the sex scenes in Lust Caution do advance the plot and are essential to the film's complex character study of a young woman who becomes a Matahari figure in a radical plot to take down a Japanese collaborator in World War II-era China. I am not sure that the film's scattered shots suggesting vaginal penetration would meet everyone's idea of advancing the plot, but if you're going to use explicit sex scenes as a vehicle for storytelling, why omit that imagery? Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, Lust Caution's approach to filmed sex remained an anomaly. As pornography became increasingly pervasive around the turn of the millennium, one logical response would have been for mainstream narrative films to start incorporating the elements of adult films that it was easiest to normalize within the narrow-mindedness of the MPAA, like hetero intercourse. But instead, Hollywood went the other way, allowing graphic sex to be compartmentalized on video and eventually the internet 
while narrative films became more coy and suggestive than explicit. If a film has been released in the U.S. featuring straight sex scenes that are as graphic as those in Lust Caution over the last 16 years, I haven't seen it. Back in the mid-2000s, there was some discussion that maybe, finally, the NC-17 could become a meaningful designation for films that were geared to adults, but which also appealed to a large enough number of adults to allow for commercial viability. Of course, we have heard those conversations before. And, of course, it has always been all talk. Even putting aside the third rail of the rating system, Hollywood films seem to become more violent and less interested in human relationships every year. What has flourished over the last decade are art house films, usually period films, often in languages other than English, that depict mostly queer sex. Given the story of the rating system that we've traced over erotic 80s and 90s, we should cheer the proliferation of movies like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Call Me By Your Name, and The Handmaiden. We should also not get too excited about how much progress has been made, given that just this year, the pansexual romance passages was rated NC-17 due to an artfully shot sex scene between two men that was absolutely not gratuitous within the context of the story. But it's also interesting that both filmmakers and audiences in America seem more comfortable with sex when it can be set in the past, or in another country, or both, as though that part of our lives is something that needs to be displaced in space or time. I think that impulse also explains a resurgent interest in erotic thrillers and other movies from the 20th century that depict sex with urgency and seriousness, sometimes so much seriousness that it tips over into camp, which is sometimes for the better, but not necessarily explicit extended sexual action. I always think back to that Paul Schrader quote, that we think we want to see sex in movies, but actually, we want to almost see sex in movies. Maybe we don't really want reality. Maybe the lasting legacy of the production code is that, in its classical form, Hollywood cinema cannot accommodate sexual reality. And maybe the collective we doesn't want it to. To paraphrase another Richard Gere film, Maybe we want the fairy tale. Thanks for listening to Erotic 90s and Erotic 80s. And the rest of you must remember this. I don't know when we will be back with a new season, but you can follow the pod on social media or join Patreon for updates. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. 
And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. Did you know that we have merch? At youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop, you can buy You Must Remember This hats, totes, coffee mugs, and t-shirts, as well as copies of my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, signed by me. Get yours today at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.